0: This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name's Jeff Major. I hope you're having a fantastic day. This is episode 30. I have Ashley Leskey on the show. She is a park ranger for the Richmond National Battlefield Parks. Um, she's done some fantastic research on the uh, Richmond's Civil War uh, life, uh, but it's on the seedier the, the underbelly of Richmond during the civil war. Um, she gets into, you know, some, some the really amazing changes that take place when a city becomes the capital of the Confederacy or a capital of any kind of country, massive influx of, of people. Um, you know, it's going through a lot of change. You know, it's not just the population changes. Um, not just the, you know, different people being here, but the, the people that are here have to adjust to these changes and they change themselves. Um, You know, the the entire structure of society really becomes, you know, puts itself into flux and what people think uh, is is moral changes, um, you know, and how you deal with, with that kind of change in in a very rapid time. I mean, Richmonders needed to adjust. Um, You know, the Confederate government coming here is not just like a new company that announces, you know, 500 new jobs or or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, this is, this is massive change. This is crazy. And this influx of of soldiers, speculators, you know, th- th- slaves, prostitutes, opportunists, uh, murderers. I mean, you know, w- whatever shadiness you can imagine. I mean, I mean, gender bending. I mean, <laughs> you don't normally hear the words gender bending associated with really anything that goes with the Civil War, um, but as she describes, this, this kind of thing happens, right? In in certain aspects. Uh, You know, morals, morals change, right? The way people live their life changes. Um, This is going to be, you know, filed under the Civil War life in Richmond. I mean, the the somewhat periodic series I've been trying to do. The Richmond National Battlefield Parks are doing some really amazing things. You know, the the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, especially when a lot of it's getting closer into Richmond. So a lot of this is really kind of heating up. And for the one hundred fiftieth of the battles of Fort Harrison and the New Market Heights, um, they're going to be doing some uh, you know full programs for the one hundred fiftieth of those um, September twenty seventh until September thirtieth, with some amazing historians from the Richmond National Battlefield uh, Parks, including Ashley Leske, and you can you can go check her out. Um, you know, she's gonna be doing uh, a tour uh, at two forty five on September twenty-seventh of the Union troops, including US colored troops, uh on their attack on Fort Gilmer. Uh and the next day, ten forty five anniversary of the attack on Fort Harrison. And September twenty ninth, there's gonna be a real time tour of the attack on Fort Gilmer. So if you miss it the day of the you know the on the on the twenty seventh, you can go check that out. Um, you can find out more information about you know all the anniversary events that they're doing on the web, uh, and that's nps.gov forward slash r i c rich forward slash plan your visit forward slash fort harrison one hundred fifty t h dot html. Um, but that address is long and. You can just go to historyreplaystoday.org and I'll have a link on it there and you can find out all the information. Go check out Ashley's tours. Go check out all the tours. It should be really fantastic. I don't know. You might see me there. You never know. But uh, October is coming up and that means that River City Seg's will be featuring their Ghosts and Grizzly Stories Segway Tour. You can go check that out. Um, you know that River City Seg's is the premier Segway tour company in Richmond. You know They, they offer the only indoor segway specific it's the only indoor and the only segway specific training facility in virginia that's pretty awesome and the ghost and grizzly stories tour is going to be highlighted through october um you know it's uh, mostly going to be stories of murder and mayhem and grave robbing and all kinds of halloweeny type things um you can find out more information at rivercitysegs.com you can check out River City Segs on facebook on Instagram, and on Twitter, at 804segs. Um, but I sat down with Ashley Lesky, uh, you know, upstairs from the Chimborazo Medical Museum in Churchill. Um, if you've never been there, you should. It's in Chimborazo Park. doesn't take long. It's a really cool museum. Um, but if you do hear a, a few beeps while we're going, uh, you don't panic. You're not losing your mind. Um, we're actually sitting in an office just outside of the microwave. Um, and it was just around lunchtime, so you so you can hear a couple microwave sounds in the background. But uh, so, anyways, um, I did actually start out asking her about you know why she such a such a sweet and innocent woman. Why did she get into researching the the underbelly, the nastiness, the seedy areas of Richmond?
1: Well, I've always been interested in the social and cultural part of Richmond during the war, Um, what Confederate Richmond was like for the average civilian living in the city. Um, And we talk so much about what goes on in the battlefields and even so much about politics and um, things like that in the city uh, that I think that often gets ignored. It's to kind of look at, you know, kind of the heartbeat of the city Um, and also looking at kind of the seedy underbelly. Right. Um, it's a city at war, so there are going to be um, some kind of unsavory elements of the population and some unsavory and illicit activities that are going on.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, so I was really interested in kind of looking more into that, and I knew some of this from previous research I had done, and I really wanted to kind of delve into it um, and expose kind of the darker side of war that we don't often think about or really want to think about just because it's not... Is uh, comfortable to talk right. about
0: well and i don't know do you, do you have a chance to look at like how seedy it was before the war like yeah how the change
1: sure yeah and that was important to kind of showing the shift the trends you know pre- before the war and then how the war kind of changed changes what has been happening uh, prior to the war um and before the war there were certainly pockets of crime and pockets of kind of an unsavory population Um, But those elements kind of clustered in specific areas in the city, kind of in the lowlands of the city. Uh, The more kind of elite, respectable people, the businessmen, um, their wives, uh, the politicians and their families would have clustered on kind of the upper ends of the city. So East Grace Street, um, uh, Broad Street, Marshall, that area, uh, whereas kind of the working class neighborhoods would have been more on Cary Street, Um, on Main Street to some degree as well, but they were confined uh, to those elements. And then during the war, we see just kind of this explosion of people who are prostitutes, people who are speculators, people who are looking to take advantage of kind of other people's sufferings, and those elements kind of spill out into respectable space. Right. Uh, So it kind of became a battle for public space in the way that it wasn't prior to the war. And before the war, there were certainly elements of of vice, and there were crimes and murders and thefts and all this and that. Um, And you can see that clearly in the Richmond papers. But during the war, the numbers of those incidents just explode. And in terms of who is being involved in those incidents, um, it's kind of turning into a different class of people. You see once maybe respectable people from kind of middling elements of society, Um, soldiers kind of being lured in Mm -hmm. by some of the vice, lured in by prostitutes. Um, You see businessmen who, before the war, had been regarded as, you know, upstanding businessmen conducting business to support themselves, their family. They're supporting the city, you know, commercially and economically. But then during the war, they turn into speculators and extortioners and really taking advantage of people. You can't trust anybody because of what they're doing. Um, So those are the two main differences, is that, you know, the battle for public space and that these unsavory elements are spilling out into the broader population um, and also just kind of an explosion in the number of incidents that are troubling.
0: Right. And how big, so I guess Lowlands, you're talking about just Shaco Bottom.
1: Shaco Bottom um, is certainly kind of the heart of it. There was an area, actually, in Shaco Bottom um, between 17th and 18th Streets, um, East Cary, and Main Street called Little Dublin, um, that was known as Little Dublin before the war. Um, And then during the war, it kind of re-solidified that area. But that was an area that was heavily, you know, Irish immigrants um, and their descendants living in that area. So they called it Little Dublin. Um, So that was a a big um, place where a lot of, you know, kind of shacks and shanty towns cropped up before the war. And then they really kind of took shape during the war itself and afterwards. So like right on the farmer's market. Exactly, yeah. The farmer's market was kind of a a dividing line, um, okay. basically where Shaco Creek ran and still runs, I guess, underneath Main Street along right. 18th Street. Um, kind of the, the western edge, everything to the west of Shaco Creek uh, was kind of more respectable, and everything to the east was kind of... <clears throat> you didn't want to go there. If you were one of the more respectable people in society... Um, also, in terms of the businesses that were to the east of the farmers' market in Chaco Bottom, um, they were, you know, butcheries and tanneries and places that didn't necessarily necessarily smell good or look right. good. So you, you didn't want to be around them. Um, so the market it was the, the was, other
0: side of the tracks. It was the other side exactly, of the
1: creek. Exactly. Exactly. And the market was kind of this odd mix of people who, you know, very respectable people could go there and do their shopping and buy food and clothing. Um, There were hucksters, which today we connote that word with something unsavory, someone who's trying to take advantage of another person economically. But back during, you know, antebellum civil war era, that was known as just a normal person who was selling, you know, goods at the market. Um, But then there were also, at night, there were shootings, and there were drunk people literally lying in the gutter. (laughs) <laughs> um and so it looked very different so you had this odd mix of respectable and non-respectable coming together you had white you had black you had free blacks who would also do their shopping in that area you would have slaves who were sent by their masters and mistresses to do shopping so it was kind of a um, a mix of people coming together
0: right and so the city at that point as well Where's that western border? It's like probably—is it as far as Belvedere at that point?
1: Yes, I believe Belvedere is technically the westernmost border, and then the eastern border was 25th Street. Okay. Um. So it was a much narrower downtown area.
0: Right. Um. And so, and I guess a lot of these folks are, like, not—I mean, I guess it's people within the change of the war. I mean, the population difference, right? I mean, you're getting a right. huge amount of whatever you know, I don't even know what, I guess people looking for opportunities. Yeah,
1: yeah, you have the opportunists, you have um, tons of refugees Mm -hmm. coming into the city. You have uh, a lot of women who are widows or orphans or they're soldiers' wives, and they're coming from places in Northern Virginia um, that have been taken over by Union occupation, they're coming from North Carolina, um, even as far as the Deep South, and they're coming up by the rail lines and sometimes just, you know, in wagons. And um, the population explodes from 38,000 prior to the war to over 150,000 by 1865. Wow. So, yeah, it's an enormous uh, growth over a very short time period.
0: Right. And I think one of the really interesting things, I mean, I I remember when I was talking to Mike Gorman, um, that there, I guess he didn't really see any, but there doesn't seem to be any, like, major buildings. You know, like if there's that many people, it seems like someone would be like, yeah, we're going to build right. this enormous apartment, you know, like the specul- real estate speculation or anything right. like that.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I haven't really seen anything like that either. What they're basically doing is just taking over first the public spaces. Um, hotels are being taken over by refugees and then they're being turned into hospitals. So that kicks out the refugees And then the private spaces are gradually becoming more and more refugee living quarters. They're divided up, you know, these big mansions um, that sometimes even wealthy members of society can't afford to keep them up anymore. And so they're renting out rooms um, to refugees. Sometimes you have up to eight families living in one single mansion with them dividing up their parlors and their dining rooms into separate living quarters for different families. Right. So no building. It's just people are packing in tighter and tighter, and that's what causes the disease, and that's what causes the the pressure on resources. Um, It's one of the reasons, of course, for the bread riots in 1863. Uh, there's a lot of class tension, there's a lot of social tension, and there's a lot of suspicion in the city.
0: Sure. And, and is that like a weird, um, I mean, is there a point where that becomes like socially, like I like imagine like, especially the, like the Ha southern society, you know, right. you have a mansion <laughs> and then suddenly you have borders. Right. I mean, that's got to be thoroughly embarrassing, you know, like right. not, I don't know. I mean, does it at any point become common Or where people are like, yeah, I guess that's all right. That-
1: sure. Yeah, I think one of the big things that people have to deal with, Richmonders deal with, are not only the physical changes to their city, but also how do they reckon with um, the social changes and kind of their conceptions of a hierarchical society. They're being inundated with people who they don't know. They don't know what social strata they belong to. Uh, They're terribly afraid that there are social pretenders who will you know, kind of work their way up into the high social niches, but really they're prostitutes or you know, speculators or people without a respectable background. Um, And so people are deeply troubled. It's a moral question for a lot of people. How do we solve this problem? Um, And how do we reinstate that hierarchy? How do we police society and make sure that only the right people have access to, you know, private spaces that are reserved for respectable individuals? And so for some people, um, I would say more so kind of the, the middling to upper middling classes, I think they become a lot more okay with all the refugees coming in, um, and a lot of you know depraved women. Of course, they they don't approve of prostitution, but they can understand. I think some of these women who have no other choice, who are just wandering the city, and some of them fall into you know bad situations. But the upper classes, I think, uh, still pretty much snub their noses right. at these people. And it creates really a a disaffection between the upper and lower classes where the start of the war, even up through the middle of the war, upper classes are responsible for providing a lot of charity for these poor women, especially coming into the city. And they host all kinds of charity bazaars and fairs and things and concerts. And really kind of around the bread riots, just a little thereafter. It seems like a lot of that charity kind of becomes um, more withdrawn. It becomes more individually focused on specific individuals that elite women and elite men come to get to know. They're still having, you know, the concerts and the fairs, but they kind of direct that to a very specific group of people rather than saying, we're going to raise money and give it out to, you know, God knows who comes into this city and can just take our money.
0: And are there any, like, proper, like, plans of solution Cause it's always pretty entertaining, like, especially in the 19th century, like, you know, how you, you know, just stop being poor or like some weird outlandish idea i right. how to fix these problems.
1: Yeah. Um, there's a lot of talk um, throughout the war. It starts really in late 1861 and early 1862 about needing a workhouse for the poor. Um, because when the soldiers come into the city and when you start getting a lot of wounded and a lot of sick soldiers, basically every public space, as I said, is taken up as a hospital. And that includes the new alms house that was built just prior to the war. And people thought that was going to be the solution for urban poverty.
0: Mm-hmm. Send and, people to And that's to just alms on house. the, just across from Chacoville Cemetery?
1: It is. North, yeah. Africa. On Hospital Street. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The building is still there, actually. Right. Um... And a lot of people thought that would be the solution, and you'd send people there; they'd, you know, reform themselves, and then they'd be sent back out into society as quote unquote respectable people. And during the war, that's taken over pretty quickly um, by the medical department. It later becomes uh, a barracks right. um, for the VMI cadets.
0: And, but wait, a workhouse, like, like is that just like a sweatshop, or like what? What does that actually mean?
1: It's basically um, it, it's an almshouse that poor people would be provided with work to do so they'd earn their keep, but they'd also be contributing members of society. Right. And it was thought that that would instill the moral values that they needed to come back out into society and become respectable people.
0: So they're kind of like learning a trade or are they just like helping rich people? Um, like,
1: they're kind of helping out, um, it's work that's, you know, doing laundry, laundresses, um, doing seamstress work, uh, helping out with some of the trades in town, the, the cobbler shops, um, tanneries, factory work, things like that, um, where they'd have a place to come home to and stay at night, but the almshouse would kind of work with other businesses to get them some kind of jobs.
0: Right. Um, and cause it seems like, uh, you know, especially like the women coming into the city, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, it's, you know, I guess you can correct me if I'm wrong. but like, my perception is that, you know, their perception is, you know, women aren't smart enough or, you know, they're too emotional to do any, you know, to have an actual opinion. So, I mean, especially, you know, if your husband dies in war, um, I mean, are there alternatives? I mean, you're pretty much screwed, right? I mean, like, and there's not that many men, you know, men are going away. So, It's
1: tough. Um, If you're left as a widow during the war, um, a lot of the times those women didn't even have the money to refugee. Uh, A lot of the the refugees who come in are women who had some kind of means to be able to come into the city. Um, Now if you got, if you were a respectable woman, uh, even if you were relatively poor, you could apply for a job with the Treasury Department signing notes, um, Treasury notes, You get a job in the quartermaster department, helping out in the postmaster's department. So there were jobs for some women, but there weren't enough jobs. Right. Um, And there were also, you know, you could kind of um, do piecework for upper-class women. You could do their laundry, you could do sewing, um, you could cook for them. But that, of course, runs the fine line between, well, what's the difference between what a slave does and what a white woman does? um and that creates a lot of tension you don't want to be doing what even a free black person would do you want to differentiate differentiate yourself somewhat
0: sure and so i guess the um is it like would you see like i don't know kind of one thing is like is it more likely like going into like a prostitution thing would that be more likely for you know it seems like someone who's already was poor Mm -hmm. was definitely not the elite to do me a lot more. All right with that, mm-hmm. like I could probably wash some dishes or you know some laundry. Where sure. someone who's elite is like, I'm not going to do that, and and they need finance. Absolutely, right? they need to live a lifestyle. So mm-hmm. it seems like that would be a more. I don't know. It's fastest. You know, it's easy way to do it, right? And you don't have to have. I don't know. Piecework. You don't probably mm-hmm. don't need pimps and you know, you don't have to get hired. You just are like, here we go.
1: For some, yeah, for some certainly. Um elite women, yeah, they're they're generally just not gonna even think about going to prostitution. Those are the women who would generally go to the treasure treasury department or the postmasters sure. department. Something
0: like more of this middle the middle ones. Yeah. Right. I guess the higher the closer you are to the top, the right. more
1: the less likely you're gonna be to fall into prostitution. Okay. So, yeah, middling class, obviously you're going to look for some kind of housework you can do or piecework that you can do before you resort to prostitution. Prostitution is, you know, these women have absolutely no other way to go um, for the most part. It's women who are extremely poor. Uh, Some women have little children that they're trying to support, and this is the only way they can do it. So some of these brothels in the city have women and girls ranging from, you know, four years old up to 50 years old uh, right. were doing this work. Um, and all these brothers were very different. There were some that were just kind of the lowest of the low, and a lot of those operated um, between a section of Cary Street between uh, 7th and 8th Street and all the way down to 6th Street, too. It was called Solitude, and that was considered the worst uh, red-light district. There was another district that was just at the base of Church Hill, um, known as uh, uh, Sugar Bottom.
0: Right.
1: And some people, I guess, still know it as Sugar Bottom yeah, today, which is absolutely. interesting. And then there's another area, I don't know where it is, called Pink Alley. And those were kind of the three more depraved areas. But then there were certain sections of Carey Street between 14th and 15th Streets. And then on the corner of uh, 12th and Cary, um, where there were bordellos that were run by very wealthy women. And some of these women were opportunists they had money before the war one of these women her name was uh, anna thompson and she lived on 12th and carry and she had mm-hmm. a bordello there at the corner and she was worth something like thirteen thousand dollars in real estate which is huge right that's during the civil right. war there was another woman between 14th and 15th on Cary named clara coleman who was worth about sixteen thousand dollars and they could choose some of them could choose what kind of clients they let in um, they would be in charge of running, you know, the other girls uh, that they would hire out. Um, and so those were very different um, than some of the other more depraved brothels. And some of the brothels in town were kind of located above um, taverns or saloons or gambling parlors. And some of them were pretty respectable. There was one that supposedly the the tavern downstairs spent $10,000 per day on food. That might be a little exaggerated, right. I think. But supposedly they serve champagne and and bourbon and oysters and things like that. So they weren't all of the same character.
0: And and is it mostly ladies running these places?
1: It's sometimes ladies. um, It's other times it's men. It's the pimps hiring out um, these women. Uh, But there are a lot of instances where women are in charge of the house. And they have a number of uh, women, and sometimes men, actually, who are being hired out, too, as prostitutes. A couple of instances, too, of men who were listed as women on the 1860 census and then they're classified as men um in the newspapers so there's some gender bending right. going on
0: and i don't know I mean, there's probably no way to even know but i mean are there clients men or are they women i mean like
1: for the prostitutes who were men yeah i don't know i mean
0: that's probably yeah no one's yeah. gonna probably broadcast that like, i don't but, think
1: so i don't think so um
0: that's pretty interesting
1: But there were incidents of, um, in the newspaper, I'm thinking of one incident uh, that happened, the title was Extraordinary Freak, and it was a man found dressed in women's clothes who was wandering around drunk downtown. Um, There were incidents of women dressing up in men's clothes and uniforms and walking around, not trying to portray a soldier, but just... right.
0: You know if they could only see now extraordinary oh, like right. that's not even like, <laughs> like God knows what you'd have to be an extraordinary freak nowadays I right. mean, like
1: yeah, you know, there'd have to be some other word for it than right. <laughs> freak
0: <laughs> that's definitely like not extraordinary at right. all, sure um and I mean what are the uh you know so I mean you know I guess like sugar bottom in particular I mean that's just at the bottom, and are those those aren't the original buildings, are they I, I don't think the ones so. that are there no. yeah. Um, the weirdest spot. It is. It's the weirdest spot right now. It um, is. It's,
1: it's can't strange. believe it
0: still exists. That someone has not built a million dollar house. Right. I don't know. Yeah, um, it's
1: kind of the part of Richmond that the rest of Richmond forgot.
0: Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. Um. But so that's like mostly soldiers. I'm assuming, right? Because yes. Chimborazo is just at the top of the hill, right? And mm-hmm. Sugar bomb's just below us here.
1: Right. And that was one of the main concerns, is that a lot of the people who are frequenting these houses of prostitution are soldiers. Mm. And some of them are just stationed in the city. They're garrisoned in the city. Some of them are coming from um, Camp Lee, just in the outskirts of the city. And they're going in specifically to visit prostitute houses. And then some of them are these soldiers who are supposed to be recuperating in hospitals, and they're making their way over, and they come back to the hospitals intoxicated, they come back with STDs, Um, they come back, you know, just generally distracted. And this is one of the big points of concern for people in Richmond, and they say it in the newspaper several times, about how they're afraid that this will lower the morale of soldiers, it will make them effeminate if they're hanging around prostitutes all the time. And it will make them never want to leave Richmond and go off to battle because life is too good with the prostitutes. Right. So it's too tempting, and so this is really this is why it's seen as a big threat. Um, sure. Because it's taking men away from the duties that they're supposed to be attending to with the war, and especially during the latter part of the war when things aren't going too well militarily, people turn and point the finger at, you know, the saloons and the gambling parlors and the brothels. For, right the reasons why soldiers aren't fighting as well
0: and what kind of stds are they dealing with
1: um you, i imagine I? it's gonorrhea is mentioned yeah. um and i imagine just kind of some of the things that are still kicking around today they just say generally a venereal disease um ap hill um, had a lot of venereal disease during okay. the war i um, not sure exactly where he picked that up um, but it could have been from you know some of these kinds of ladies Um, But, you know, kind of the standard syphilis is another big one. Sure. Um, And there was an instance actually just below the Capitol um, on 10th Street where there was a branch of the YMCA that had opened up um, between Main Street and Cary Street on 10th Street. And um, there was a group of soldiers that were recovering in there. And pretty soon after that branch of the YMCA opened up, um, an enterprising madam opened up a brothel just across the street and she would send her girls down into the front windows of the brothel and they would appear in all sorts of states of undress and they mm-hmm. would um, you know point and smirk and try and get the soldiers attention and it was noted that some of those soldiers would go across the street and they'd come back with red noses and they'd have all kinds of different diseases. Right.
0: So. And are there treatments? Like, are they getting treated, or is it
1: you know, I'm not sure um, what the treatments are for STDs in yeah. the 19th century. I'm not sure what the nature of the treatments are.
0: And this is probably a stupid question, but I mean, it, obviously it's morally wrong, but is it actually illegal? Like, I mean, are many the police cracking down on this, or is it...
1: Well, it's interesting, because after um, martial law is imposed in the city in March of 1862, um, supposedly, you know, having saloons open that sell, you know, whiskey freely, um, places of prostitution, gambling dens, those are all supposed to be shut down. And it's only certain ones that are targeted. Right. And there are a number of police raids on some of these um, various places, the the gambling parlors and the brothels, um, as well as uh, the saloons. And some of them are shut down, um, but then they just reopen as soon as the police leave the men and women involved have to post a security um, fine, which is usually between $200 and 500 It's pretty big. Right. Um, but they just reopen, and these women are brought in time and time again. And it's mentioned, you know, in the mayor's court records, here comes, you know, Joanna Sullivan. She was drunk in the sidewalk again. She had been plying her trade on Carey Street.
0: Right.
1: Um, but they just, they get away with it because you can't patrol everybody.
0: Sure, absolutely. Huh, that's a... Uh um, I don't know. It just seems weird. The, and are there these military police that are doing this? Or is this is like the local police? Because
1: I guess I'm assuming that on
0: martial law, they basically dissolve the local police, right? I mean, effectively.
1: Yeah. I mean, they say that the, um, you know, military police basically trump the authority of the city police and that they can issue whatever, you know, edicts they need to in order to keep the city in line. Um, but they still have a large police force, uh, that patrols mm-hmm. the city. I believe they have, uh, 40 or 50 or so police officers. They have, uh, about 20 or so night watchmen, mm-hmm. which 20 night watchmen right. in a big city, that's not really going to do very much. Um, so it's, it's a combination of both that are patrolling the city. Um, and so, you know, when they go in and they have these raids and these crackdowns on these various, uh, parlors and saloons, They go in and sometimes they find, you know, some of their fellow officers right in there, you know, playing cards, playing Pharaoh, um, you know, drinking away in the saloons. And, uh, again, it's that question of how did a once respectable soldier or officer come to the point where he's spending all of his time with a prostitute or playing cards? Sure. So, uh, there are a series of very famous rum raids that happened down by the market um, basically, between seventeenth all the way up through twenty fourth or so um, on main street, um, police would just descend upon these houses that they had a suspicion or it had a tip off that um you know rum and whiskey were flowing. Uh, And they would go in, and they would literally roll out barrels of liquor and pour them into the streets. Right. Uh, And at the same time, kick out a whole bunch of uh, unsavory people inside.
0: And so are they not supposed to be serving alcohol at all, or just...
1: There's, at different points in the war, there are different um, kind of rules. Um, You can serve alcohol at certain establishments. Um, At some places, you're only supposed to serve up until, I think it was 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Um, and these places were just, you know, serving throughout the night, um, other times during the war, um, there are certain laws that said you can only serve, you know, certain amounts of liquor. You couldn't just have, you know, barrels of liquor standing in the back where people can have as much as right. they want. Uh, you're kind of limited on how much you have to give out.
0: That's pretty awesome. Like bottle service now is important right. but when you get barrel service. That's, right. That's hardcore. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> 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 and, and I mean, are people drinking mostly liquor or is, it like there, is there a lot of beer or is there any kind of like, I mean, it's just everything, free for all.
1: Yeah, I think it's everything. Um, liquor is obviously huge during the war. Um, it obviously hits you faster, but there's a large supply of it that's going to the hospitals sure. um, to help with medicinal treatments and a lot of kind of the, the wagons that are going to the hospitals, they sometimes get rerouted Mm -hmm. and uh, those barrels end up elsewhere.
0: And do do we know where they're made? Cause there's like embarked, so you can't like import it into the country, right? Or very easily.
1: Good question. Yeah. Some of it can come through the blockade with blockade runners. Mm -hmm. So it's not coming through legally, obviously. Um, But some of it, you know, is being... I guess
0: the whole war wasn't really legal. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm sure you get some backlash sure. uh, from some people on that. All right, right. <laughs> um but I think uh some of it was coming, you know, from just kind of local local distilleries um, sure. making it at home and bringing it into the city selling it.
0: Right. Um but I mean but is there there's no like there's not like a hometown are there distilleries in the city? I don't. I've uh, never heard of any.
1: Um, I can't think of any that come to mind okay. in the city. Um, I'm guessing that uh, that liquor was probably brought in to the city from someplace else.
0: Sure. And and are they just? I mean, are there any drugs involved here? Like opiates or like?
1: Yeah, good so question like ether again. Would be good. They use. I like that.
0: Two good questions. Okay. So, <laughs>
1: yes. yes me. Um, they're obviously using opiates, um, at the hospitals again. And there are some very respectable men and women who use and abuse those freely during the war. Mary Chestnut being one of the more famous ones. She Mm -hmm. was often on opium, um, which is why her diary is often so interesting to read. Um, but I'm not sure in terms of what, you know, kind of the average people, these people we've been talking about. Um, I'm not sure if they were on, anything at the time or what they were using. I know elsewhere there have been reports that prostitutes were often using opium, um, just to kind of, you know, get themselves through the, the daily grind of what they're doing, but I'm not sure exactly here
0: in Richmond. Sure. And so, I mean, so I mean, I guess that brings up a good point because these, especially the places getting raided. I mean, Mary Chestnut, there's some people like that. They're not going somewhere that's going to get raided. Right. So, I mean, are they having, but they're still getting drunk and, you know, I mean, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, so are they hanging in their North. own spots or they, just in their homes or?
1: They are. Um, in the early part of the war, as I said, they're they're kind of, they're more publicly seen. Um, they're going to places where they're interacting more commonly um, with at least people of the middling sort, but sometimes, you know, people of the, the lower sort as well. Um, they go to the theater a lot throughout the war and the theater is known as a place In the 19th century, that's supposed to be very democratic, so people from all walks of life can come to it. But one of the problems is that the theater has a bar in it, and with all of the seating being tiered as it is, you know, you have elite people kind of sitting in their own section and the parquet, which is kind of the, you know, the nice little tucked away to the side, side balconies. Um, And then you have the orchestra area, which is also pretty respectable. But then you have the second and third tiers, which is for Mm -hmm. soldiers. Um, Some free blacks can go, um, slaves if they had earned money enough to go, um, and they can visit the bar. And so you have these fights that break out in the theater, and you have literally stabbings, you have people being thrown off the balconies, um, you have people basically as the theaters let out every night streaming down these once respectable streets uh, as this is a great 19th century saying that I love, uh, making the night hideous, uh, (laughs) with their screams and their drunkenness. Um, and so again, as the elite people see this happening, they kind of pull away from Mm -hmm. these public theaters during the war and they stay at home and they have these elaborate charades and tableau, um, spectacles that they arrange for themselves. They have, they have their own kind of house parties, Mm -hmm. uh, and they kind of retreat from public space. Um, so you generally see that happening during the war. They're still going to church, um, of course, which is a big public gathering place where all people, all walks of life can go, um, but for the most part, you know, elite people don't want to be caught dead at some of these theaters. And the most respectable theater is the big theater on Broad Street, 7th and Broad. It actually burns on uh, New Year's Eve, 1861, um, and people think that it might have been burned by some refugees from Baltimore um, who got rowdy, um, and it on fire. And so it's rebuilt and it reopens in February of 1863, um, and it's thought to, you know, this is going to be the really nice theater that's going to inculcate good morals and good values and educational Mm -hmm. entertainment, and you still have the problems happening. You have prostitutes sneaking into the elite boxes, um, you have, uh, mulatto women who are caught in the boxes that are reserved specifically for white women things like that. But then you also have these little theaters that crop up in the time that uh, the new Richmond Theater is being built in 1862. And those theaters occur um, in the basement of the Exchange Hotel, uh, so on Bank Street by 14th Street. Um, You have Metropolitan Hall, which opens up as another theater venue. And some of these venues kind of become more debauched in the eyes of elite people. They have a lot of minstrel shows. um, They have a lot of kind of cheap... Um Kind of lewd as they call it entertainment, and those kind of become more so the areas that the lesser members of society frequent if you were respectable you 'd section yourself off and you 'd go to the big theater or you 'd stay at home you wouldn't go to those smaller theaters,
0: sure, and so you mentioned there i mean they're they 're obviously not integrated i mean they're different sections, but right. um are these bars and brothels are there going to be i guess mixed clientele and mixed, I mean, could you have like black and white prostitutes and mulattoes and I men? Yeah. that's ex- uh, that, that the that's same a, place?
1: Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, oftentimes it's going to be separated. Um, it's, it's segregated with the brothels. Um, it's going to be, you know, African-Americans kind of stay in their own areas. Um, then you have the white brothels. Occasionally you get instances, um, of, you know, they say colored women, uh, you know, removed from so-and-so's, uh, uh, brothel, mm-hmm. um, which is shocking because it's it's considered you know promiscuous for black right. and white people to ever live together, um, especially in a, a place of depravity, as they sure. call it, the prostitute dens. Um, it's, but generally it's nice to
0: separate. have morals in your prostitution.
1: Right, like, right, yeah. They, <laughs> <laughs> they really stuck by those. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so it could happen occasionally, but for the most part, it's segregated.
0: And are they in different parts of the city, or is that going to be just different <clears throat> um, just different places i mean different buildings
1: um in the shanty town so kind of in the east of the the market area um there is a mix of black and white residents um free black for the most part um and then these very very poor uh white women who are living in that part um those can be mixed there are some brothels that crop up there um there's another area on Wall Street so which is south 15th street as it goes south of uh, main street um which i believe had both black and white uh dens of ill fame is what they called them um and there were often fights that broke out in the streets um by Wall Street um and also by an area called Locust Alley which ran Basically, if you took the 95 Interstate ramp um, by 15th Street and you cut straight through a parking deck uh, that goes right there on Main Street, that would have been Locust Alley. There are some black and white brothels kind of set up right across the street from each other.
0: There's an alley that actually is called <coughs> Locust Alley now. I, right. I don't know where I've seen that sign. Is that not the right one?
1: There's, it's not the right one um, because the original one is has been torn down and now there's sure. that big parking deck there. Um, There's an alley called uh, Lombardi Alley that's still there, and that was another very kind of depraved area. Sure. Um, And that ran uh, parallel to Main Street, uh, basically where 15th Street cuts through
0: Main. And so that's also like the slave trading district as well. So all your scene operations kind of all going together.
1: Right. But what's interesting about it is, you know, on 14th Street and 15th Street, Uh, You have Lumpkin Slave Jail right there. You have a lot of the the slave auction houses um, that you can see some of the markers for still today. But then on the corner of 15th Street and Main was the St. Charles Hotel, which was this beautiful, huge, elaborate hotel um, that was known as one of the most respectable gathering places prior to the war and in the early part of the war. It's soon taken over as a hospital for the most part, but elite women continue to host these really... Very nice concerts there. They're playing Mozart and Brahms and all kinds of, you know, very uh, elite uh, taste music to raise money for poor women. And it's right across the street from this alleyway where some of the worst acts of depravity are going on. So again, you have that fine line between what's respectable and what's not. And that's what causes so much tension. Right. Because if you're elite and you're going to the St. Charles to attend one of these, you know, morally you know, uplifting, uh, concerts for the sake of charity, you have to pass the alleyway and who knows what kind of characters you're going to meet along. Sure. And,
0: and, and it also just kind of occurs to me that it's, it would be, I I don't know, are there slave prostitutes? Like that seems like it's kind of a no brainer, right? I don't know.
1: Right. Um, well, a lot of the slaves in Richmond, um, because it's a you know an urban area, a lot of them are going to work in the factories. But some of them are going to be hired out by masters um, who have sent them to the city from plantations or from farms just outside Richmond, and they have a little bit more freedom um, than you know a slave who is living in the house of his master. And so you know some of those slaves. If they needed the extra money, I suppose they could engage in kind of private acts of prostitution, but for the most part, they're not going to be you know um setting up their own brothels. There are right. a couple of instances where slave women are brought out of brothels, saying that they're free, but they don't have free paper, so they're assumed to be slaves
0: right, okay, yeah um and I just kind of imagine as well that they're just guns everywhere, sure. Right, which is a really, especially talking about all this drinking and everything, is a really bad combination.
1: Right, right.
0: Um, I mean,
1: yeah. <clears throat> yeah, um, and there are a bunch of murders that go on. There are some of them broad daylight murders that happen. Uh, people are intoxicated. Uh, there was one very famous murder that happened, uh, I believe, in 1863 at the corner of Tenth and Bank Streets between two clerks from the House of Representatives And one of them um, basically got fired by the other one, who was his superior. And uh, the one who got fired said, I better have my job back by 5 p.m. or else you're a dead man. I better not see you walking around. And, of course, he's not reinstated. And so uh, his uh, superior is walking up to the Capitol one day. He has to get back to work. He ducks into a restaurant to have lunch. He steps out, and there's the man he fired. Shots are fired, and uh, the guy is killed in broad daylight. Right. And it's like the Wild West, but, you know, this is this is a city. This is the Confederate capital. You're right, right, like, you know, right by the by capital. The capital. Yeah. Exactly. And that just shows how bad things get during the war.
0: Sure. And is this isn't, like, dueling. I mean, are there, like, dueling stuff going on as well? Some of is it that?
1: is, yeah. There are some duels um, where uh, Confederate officers actually will challenge each other to a duel, most often after they've been imbibing a bit. Right. Um... The instance with the two clerks from the House of Representatives happened um, where the guy who was fired called out to the firer and said, Are you armed? And apparently both of them went for their gun, but the guy who was fired got there first. Sure. So, yeah, it's it's very much like the Wild West. Right,
0: like a cartoon almost. Yeah, right? yeah. Um,
1: so you have those, you have stabbings that occur, you have instances, um, sometimes where slaves, too, are involved in this, Attacking each other with axes, um, it was you know garroting, so strangling, um, yeah, all kinds axe of axe fight things is happen. hardcore, right? That's right, like
0: serious <laughs> business with an axe fight, sure. Um, and and I mean, is this just because people are mad and drunk, or I mean, is there are there you know I don't know. I've heard some pretty legendary like especially like kid gang stories,
1: right? Yes, I was right. going to say that the rock battles between the Shaco Hill Cats and the Butcher Cats, yeah. Um Those did go on, and there are also instances of grown adults throwing rocks at each other too, so it 's not always because they 're drunk. Um, social tensions are extreme. A lot of the tensions also happen between Irish immigrants and you know native Richmonders or you know people who have come into Richmond during the war. a lot of you know Irish prejudice, obviously in the nineteenth century right. um, so there 's a lot of uh, ethnic tension. Um, there 's of course the racial tension, uh, black and white crime going on, uh, the class tension, so it, it could happen you know sober, it could happen when people are completely drunk, it could happen anytime yeah
0: and, and it seems really interesting to me that there' throughout all this somewhat uh, lawlessness mm-hmm. that there's uh, not very like i 've never heard of any kind of uh real slave insurrection you know, like right. it seems like that would be perfect opportunity. Sure like, screw all this, like why you know, yeah, I don't
1: know. yeah, and that's exactly what basically every Southerner is afraid of during the Civil War is that there's going to be a slave insurrection, and it's going to happen tomorrow. That's what they're all thinking, and especially as more and more men are being filtered off into the war, and you know men are going off, the politicians you know are no longer at home, and they're the ones who are the big slaveholders, so of course, there's a lot to protect at home with them, um they're terrified yeah. that this is going to happen. And so, again, this is another, you know, big anxiety, source of anxiety is that you have white people who are fighting each other and dueling with each other on the streets and killing each other. How are we possibly going to stop a slave insurrection from happening if we can't even stay together as white people? Mm -hmm. Um, So that creates this huge amount of tension in the city.
0: Sure. Yeah, that's definitely, that's, that's scary. Yeah. For people like, like Yeah absolutely yeah. and 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 is uh because it's a pretty even like mix of like black and white isn't am i crazy there? i do probably fluctuates a little bit but
1: you know there are slaves coming into the city during the war to be used in the factories for the war efforts but there are also slaves being taken out of the city to work on the fortifications outside richmond um, so i'd imagine it's kind of a good ebb and flow the majority of course of the people who flood into the city are white. They're soldiers, they're refugees, um, they're women, they're politicians. Um, so most of that that influx is going to be white. So you still have a, a, a good white majority.
0: I am going to break into the conversation just for a second here to ask you, um, are you enjoying this? Are you enjoying this conversation? If you are, please donate to the podcast. Uh, you know, just help me, you know, I'm doing this. This is a, a good bit of this. this is just a labor of love. So um, you can go to historyreplacetoday.org. You can click on the support button there and just follow the directions. It's easy. Um, you can donate through PayPal. Uh, every little bit counts, you know, 10, 50, hundred dollars. Um, please keep the podcast free. Help me keep it going. And uh, again, if you're enjoying it, help support it. Thanks a lot. Now let's get back to the conversation with Ashley Lesky. And, and are, are, are there, um, I guess traveling folks as well, right? People that mm-hmm. are just passing through. Sure. Which seems like a really good opportunity to, you know, um, just raise hell. Sure. You know, and that's, um, especially with that kind of lawlessness. I mean, And I guess before I say that, I mean, is this comparable like this kind of, um, you know, what seems depravity, is it like common to cities in the South or is it just Richmond specific?
1: Yeah. Um, this thing is fairly, fairly common in Southern cities. Um, you know, any major Southern city during the war is going to have its own share of refugees. It's going to have social problems, um, with people coming into the city Big cities, of course, are um, hospital centers, so you have tons of soldiers, you have tons of nurses, and when all of those people come in, a lot of prostitutes come in as well, the speculators. Um, so this does happen in other cities. It's not unique to Richmond. Um, but because Richmond's the Confederate capital, you know, all eyes are on Richmond. Right. Um, which makes people very anxious that news will get out about this mm-hmm. and uh, that that's going to bode badly for sure. other southern cities
0: and and it seems like it's also there would be with a lot of um you know i, I guess the the spy element i think mm-hmm. and the, and the accusations of that would be a fantastic way to um i don't know kind of differentiate or even accuse you know when you get into different re- uh, bars and stuff like that you know this one you know we need to get rid of that one because there's too many union sympathizers or, you know, I mean, is that, is that a thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, people are, that's another thing they're always on edge about is the spy factor. Um, After the Red Riots happened in April of 1863, there's a lot of outcry saying that this was caused by Yankee women who had moved down to the South or a bunch of Yankee spies had incited this insurrection um, and that, you know, Yankees are the, are the cause of our social problems. And so they become a scapegoat a lot of the times, but it also becomes kind of this, this specter of, you know, we're constantly being watched. How do we know who to trust? Mm -hmm. Um, it's something that, um, the idea of identity and being able to construct your own identity and fool people based on what kind of costume you wear, what kind of mask you put on. Um, that's kind of a big specter in people's minds in the 19th century, This Victorian obsession with identity. And during the war, it becomes that much more intensely focused. And, of course, there are these huge spy rings that are going on in Richmond, and Elizabeth Van Leeu is, of course, one of the more famous members of that. But she has a a huge network of people um, who are, you know, acting strange. Some of them are getting into, you know, these high society parties. Some of them are slaves um, who are getting information uh, from their Mm -hmm. masters and mistresses and passing them on. So there is that concern. and people just have a, a huge distrust of each other right. by the end of the war.
0: Yeah, it's going to definitely bring up tons of tension.
1: Yeah. There was this great episode that happened in January of 1864 at the American Hotel, which was another one of these really very fine hotels in the center of downtown where the gas Wait, power... Do you know where
0: it is? I after. think I'm it's think
1: 11th and Main, okay. if, I'm, if I'm correct. Um, but the gas power went out... Um, So the gas lighting system failed in the middle of the dinner, and the lights went out and it went completely dark, and it was only a couple of moments that it was out, but when the gas came back on and things became illuminated again, um, one person who wrote into the paper said that everybody had grabbed the knife next to him and had their possessions grabbed, and that just kind of illuminates how no one trusted anybody else. Even the fellow diners at their own table... Um, and that was January 64. So we still had over a full year of war to go.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so how does this stuff, um, you know, I guess, you know, the, the city burns, most of that seediness mm-hmm. kind of burns down, right?
1: A large chunk of it. Yeah. Um, so everything along, you know, the 14th, 15th street corridor there on Carey street, um you know a lot of the solitude area gets burned so that's mm-hmm. true a lot of it does get destroyed by the war
0: and, and i know that i've seen because i think i understand like only one church i believe burns and i've definitely read sermons that talk you know that god came and cleaned right. you know whatever right um maybe he did i don't know he or she maybe he or she did right um <laughs> but um do you, I mean, is that beca- does that become uh, a common sentiment or are people happy with that? I mean, I mean, obviously people aren't happy with the destruction of the city, but I right. mean, I don't know. Is that a silver lining? Do people talk about it or is it?
1: Well, you know, that's interesting. Um, my research hasn't really gone much beyond the days of the burning of the city. And at that point, people are just so overwhelmed by union occupation and the war is coming to an end. The surrender, you know, is just a week away. Um, and they're just so distraught by what they see, you know, slaves, former slaves are now in the streets, you know, going wherever they choose, you know, the mm-hmm. social hierarchy is completely fallen apart. That's what they're mostly focused on okay. in terms of what I've seen. Um, after, you know, the surrender and after things begin to calm down a bit, um, I'm not sure that's something I, I need to look more into. Right.
0: And I guess even going before that, I mean, is that, um, that tension of you know, of course, robbery e. Lee will never let us down, but I mean, right. as far as they're knocking on the door for a very <clears throat> long time, sure. you know, in Petersburg and, you know, it's gotta be a sense of reckless abandon, you know, where like, right. I mean, might as well do it now, right? right. Let me rob somebody cause no one, you know, lawlessness is coming soon.
1: Right. Um, and you know, there is kind of that sense among some parts of the population, um, the the sense of the religious retribution that definitely um people start to think much more about religion and kind of the role that it's playing or maybe not playing enough in Mm -hmm. richmonder's lives in late 63 and throughout 64 it's a period of massive revivals not only in camp um but also in the city and you have pastors um james armstrong duncan who wrote for one of the christian papers in town he was the pastor at the broad street episcopal church Um, He basically said, we need several days of fasting to atone for all of the depravity. And it's not only what, you know, people like the prostitutes and the drunkards are doing, but it's also the elite, you know, who are continuing to party basically while Rome burns. Right. Um, And they're saying we need to have these days of of fasting and thanksgiving and prayer to really think about what we're doing because God is punishing us for Mm. our sins. And that becomes a very, very common sentiment. Uh, Robert E. Lee talks about it, uh, Willie Pegram, who's a famous artillerist from Richmond talks about it, um, even Phoebe Pember, who's a matron here at Chimborazo Hospital, she talks about it, that if Spartan austerity is to win the war, we're a doomed people, she mm-hmm. says. Um, and so during the Petersburg campaign, during that final you know, nine or so months, um, you do have some members of the elite population. Who have completely cleaved off from the public sphere, and they are just having these private dinners and private parties at their houses. And a lot of um, word gets out about these, about what is happening during these parties. The newspapers complain about them. There's a great newspaper called The Southern Punch, which is a very um, uh, kind of blunt newspaper that comments on the social scene in Richmond during the war that really says these women are being so inappropriate, they're being selfish, they're having these elaborate dinners, they're partying, Um, they just seem to think like, you know, they don't care that there Mm -hmm. are men who are suffering and struggling to survive day by day. But then there are other people who point out that during this last period of the war, Um, you know, these women and kind of the men that they're supporting, this is the political sphere, so Jefferson Davis and his cabinet, Judah Benjamin, um, all of those people and the various generals who come into the city, they're kind of saying, well, we need these entertainments to keep our morale up. We're the leaders, and how are we supposed to lead the people if we're not, you know, doing something to keep ourselves unified and all of that? And there are other elements of society that say, you know, now more than ever, we need to differentiate ourselves from the lower sex. So we have to have these parties that reinforce our elite, you know, identity um, and separate ourselves from what's going on in the streets. And then there's a final sector of society that says, hey, we're not partying at all. We're having starvation parties, uh, <laughs> which is very interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: And these are these parties that crop up. In 1863, Constance Carey, who's a young belle in Richmond, is one of the creators of this starvation club in Richmond and it was created by a, a group of young men and women for the purpose of entertaining soldiers when they came to town, bringing up their morale, um, giving the young people something to do. And they would have these parties where no food, no drink was served except for, as they phrased it, the amber-hued water of the James, which sounds
0: <laughs> <laughs> And
1: only amateur musicians would be allowed to play. And so a lot of these parties are starvation parties. And uh, they win some respect for that because they show you know you know, we're empathizing with the poor, we 're starving ourselves, but then on the other hand, some people say, well that's how patronizing you know to have these right. parties where you come dressed in your finest silks and gowns, and the men are there in their uniforms, um, and you're basically shoving it in everybody else's faces that you can still you know have these gatherings
0: right, to pretend like you're starving when people actually are right it's amazing exactly, yeah um and and i guess do um do do these people uh i mean i'm assuming it seems like you're saying they differentiate their own drunken and lewdness right um as much better than the the other drunken and lewdness yes um and i don't know why it seems like that dueling aspect would be you know i'm just gonna not gonna murder you in the street i'm gonna murder you with ceremony
1: right right i mean so i
0: guess that's definitely a a more upper class and because i think that actually Am I wrong if there was like a dueling ground right by here? Right by Chimborazo? I don't know. Oh, I'm not Someone sure. Someone told me, I don't know. And it's one of these amazing things that you hear that huh. I've always heard people say, and you're like, I don't know. Um, that basically, like right by Sugar Bottom, like huh. down in the valley, there was a big dueling ground. I don't know. Oh, um, I have no
1: idea. That would be really, true, really cool if, if uh, it is true. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's one of, like I said, there's a million things that yeah. people have told me over the years that I'm like probably not gonna say that until I get confirmed. Right. <laughs> um right. but uh um that's awesome. I mean I think uh I don't know, we've covered pretty good ground. Yeah, right? yeah. We have we've I mean, covered
1: a lot. Yeah. Yeah,
0: did you got something else? I mean it seems like a pretty good
1: I mean all all I would say kind of in summation is that you know Richmond before the war, um it's it's a cosmopolitan city in terms of economic factors there's a lot of business coming and going from the city so a lot of different businessmen um, but it's very parochial socially and Mm -hmm. during the war you see it coming of age as a city it's growing into its own as a city but it's suffering from all of the problems that the war puts on the city all the stresses and so it has to come of age much more quickly than a lot of other cities which creates so much of this tension and a lot of that tension, of course, evolves out of you know Victorian sensibilities of the time, uh, very strong ideas about what is moral, what is respectable, mm-hmm. um, this idea about the social hierarchy being proper, the need to differentiate Southern society from Northern society, because Northern society is the, the society that has the mobs and the riots and you know, the lawlessness in the streets. And when this happens in Richmond, it's terrifying because now they're starting to wonder, how are we different? Right. Um, And so, you know, all these issues that are going on, it shows how the war obviously impacts the city, but also how what's going on in the city poses immense threats to what is going on in the battlefield. Right.
0: Um,
1: And I think that's one of the the biggest things we can take away from that uh, is the joining of the two between city and battlefield. And the fact that so much of these areas still exist. You know, you walk down the street today, and it's almost like the buildings and the streets are talking to you. And Mm -hmm. you get to know these stories. You know, you pass Anna Thompson's Bordello. You know, you pass Tenth Street, where the the big famous murder took place. You pass Little Dublin. And these stories just kind of flood your mind. Absolutely. Um, And it's it's really fascinating to think about a city at war. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't experience that today in America, because wars are distant to us. But... Back during the Civil War, it, it comes home. And you right. have to deal with all those problems, the good, the bad, and the ugly.
0: Sure. And uh, people can go walk around with you and actually take the tour and see the places. Absolutely. And that's that's even up,
1: better. So. Yeah. We we have a good time when we do it. There's usually fun had by all, but there's also, of course, some, some serious learning and serious education sure. uh, that goes on. So uh, definitely uh, taking a tour and mm-hmm. going and seeing the specific spots uh, brings it to life.
0: Yeah, no doubt. So awesome. Thank awesome. you very much. Yeah, Thanks for you're your time. Welcome. That was it. Thank you very much, Ashley Lesky. Thank you very much to the Richmond National Battlefield Parks for uh, helping me put this thing together. And, you know, go visit them. You know, go check out her tours. Definitely, you know, keep an eye open because she actually does this. She's still continuing to do this walking tour uh, about the seedier side of, of Richmond. You know, go up there, talk to them, find out. Um, go check them out at the. The uh, you know all of the one hundred fiftieth anniversary celebrations and you know tours and you know events that they're holding and let me know what you think of the podcast. Did you like this topic? We can do more of it. Uh, you can contact me, Jeff Major, J E F F M A J E R at historyreplaysday dot You can tweet at me at history replays. You can also check me on Facebook. You know, post something there. Uh, let me know what you think. You can also do it on Tumblr. Um, and like all those things, follow those things. You can get any kind of updates. Um, you know, a lot, do a lot of, uh, today in Richmond history type of ordeals, their posts. And, um, you know, just let me know what you think. Ask a question. Uh, don't forget to donate to the podcast. That would be very, very helpful and, uh, make
1: it a great day.